As you know, more than 5 million people have been infected by the coronavirus in the U.S., and that number is climbing quickly. And here in Monterey County, we also continue to see a rise in cases on a daily basis. In the U.S., Hispanics have been hit hard by the coronavirus. According to the CDC, Latinos represent at least 31.6% of all coronavirus deaths in the country, even though they make up only 19% of the population. And in California, the country's most populous state, Latinos are becoming ill and dying from COVID-19 at far greater rates than other groups. Latinos make up 39% of the population in California, but account for 56% of COVID-19 infections and 46% of deaths. This according to the California Health and Human Services Secretary. Joining me to discuss the current situation in Monterey County in Salinas is Dr. Jaime Gonzalez. He's a hospitalist in the emergency department at SVMH. This is Ask the Experts, a podcast from Salinas Valley Memorial Healthcare System. I'm Scott Webb. So, Dr. Gonzalez, can you shed some light into what we're seeing in Monterey County and particularly Salinas, where we're seeing the most number of infections? You know, we've seen close to 5,500 cases in Salinas. We're in Monterey County, over 340 hospitalizations across our four hospitals. Our hospital is averaging right now in the last couple of weeks, maybe about 15 to 20 patients with COVID-19 in the hospital. You know, the majority of these cases is, is Hispanics and Latinos, and we're seeing, you know, 75% of these cases are uh, amongst Latinos. And one of the big reasons that we're seeing is that this is a virus that is affecting, you know, people that are out in the community, people that are essential workers, and, and especially those in the agricultural world, um, where we're seeing 23% of the cases, and this is the biggest number amongst the um occupations that we're seeing across Monterey County. And then there's also, you know, um, socioeconomic uh, factors and such as, you know, dense housing. Um, Latinos tend to uh, live in multi-generational households, you know, increased um, rates of chronic diseases such as diabetes, hypertension, uh, cardiac disease, obesity, um, and also, you know, lack of access to healthcare, which can exacerbate those conditions. And, you know, sometimes with, with Latinos, then, you know, there's higher rates of poverty. And so, you know, with a lot of these families, they have to decide whether they work to bring food to the table or can they afford to stay home. Um, and a lot of these, you know, jobs, they, they can't work from home. Obviously, you can't pick strawberries from home. You know, you can't work in the food service industry with, you know, from home. And so, um, a lot of that is what we're seeing uh, amongst the patients that were that are being hospitalized in the hospital. And, you know, there's also the aspect of education and, and whether we're getting that message across um, to these communities as to the importance of uh, wearing a mask, uh, maintaining social distance, and also avoiding family gatherings, which is a huge part. I mean, family is a central part in a Latino community. And so asking Latino families to refrain from visiting their relatives for several months is a daunting task. And so, you know, all of those, I think, are contributing to the numbers that we're seeing in Monterey County, as well as, you know, the rest of the country. Also, the other things that we're looking at is are the age groups. And so what's interesting is that we're seeing the largest group of prevalence in, in COVID-19 is the, the, the age between 25 to 34, where we're seeing 24% of the cases. Um, and so it's the most of any other age group. And again, it's always we, we ask the why. 
And so for some of these factors, it is, you know, younger people, they tend to be the working class group, um, especially in Monterey County, where you have the younger people uh, working in the field, working in the agricultural industry. And, you know, and then there's the other, there's the psychological aspect where younger people, this, this age group, tend to feel like they're invincible. And so, you know, they're young, they don't think they're going to get it, or if they do get it, they think they're going to survive because the message that's being um, put across is that, you know, it, it, it's affecting older people or it's affecting older people. And so that's what they're hearing. And so they're probably, they're, you know, there might be a sense of, of, of invincibility. And, you know, so the, the other factor is, you know, when Monterey County started opening up, a lot of these people went out into the bars, they're going out to restaurants. And so, you know, because they're, you know, to their social, you know, to their young group. Um, what I, what I've seen, you know, with some of the patients that I've admitted, um, the older folks, I mean, and even just people with non COVID um, is that the older folks, you know, they're, they're taking this a little bit more seriously and they're staying home and being more cautious about things. But, you know, unfortunately, as, as we touched on earlier, they tend to live, you know, especially with the Latino community, they live in multi-generational households. And so you have the abuelitos, the grandparents, the parents, the kids living in the same house. And so you have the younger people feeling invincible or just out of necessity of having to go out and work, bringing it home. And then, you know, these are the ones that, and then what happens is that the older people that get it from somebody in the household are the ones that end up uh, most of the time, you know, uh, getting sicker and ending up in the hospital. Most of the people that are in the hospital are older, are older folks. The majority are from people who live with um, somebody who works in the agricultural field or they themselves are, are working in the agricultural field. You know, I'm just uh, trying to process all this, and thank you for breaking all that down. And it does seem like uh, an impossible situation and impossible decisions for people. You know, as you say, uh, do do they go to work and basically risk their health, risk their lives? And if they do, then they bring it home to their families and to you know older family members in their 50s and 60s. Let's talk about children. There's this sort of prevailing sort of feeling, and I know that my kids express this to me as well, that uh, children don't get infected with COVID-19, and if they do, they're going to be just fine. And of course, you know, I ask my kids and I say, well, yeah, you might be fine, but what about me? What about your grandparents? So as we talk about Latinos and the multi-generational you know, family situations, how's that dynamic playing out with children? Well, I mean, and that's one of the, the myths, right, that children are not getting infected, but in fact they are. And we just don't know what percentage are getting infected and we don't know how easily. I mean, a lot of these things, with, as you know, with COVID-19, there's, there's a lot of unknowns just because it's such a new disease. But we are seeing kids getting infected. And like you, you touched upon, um, you know, a lot of the kids that are getting infected don't have severe symptoms. And so it, it doesn't mean that they're not you know, they may be asymptomatic, as we call it, no no symptoms, but it, they are definitely able to spread it. And so their carriers are spreading it, which is, you know, why it's important right now to keep schools closed, at least for the time being, because, you know, these you know kids go out, they, you know, maybe they get it from home, somebody who's working out in the agricultural community, um, they go to school, 
they take it to to their classmates. And again, I mean, not all kids are healthy, and there are kids with asthma, which is one of the big ones where where it can lead to significant complications and respiratory failure in people that get COVID nineteen. There is the aspect of not only spreading it to their classmates who may have underlying conditions, but also spreading it to their teachers who are older. And also each of these kids can take it to their respective homes where, you know, they can give it to their parents or grandparents. And so it's a very real disease. I know the Academy of Pediatrics came out and since then they've retracted their statement about how schools need to open and for kids, you know, the further development. But this is a unique disease and I think the more we're learning about it, the more we can learn ways of how to mitigate the risk. I think for now, we need to just shut things down until we get a better hold of this, especially, you know, in this country where we're seeing increasingly high numbers of transmission right now. You know, I wanted to zoom in a little bit here and talk about specifically your work and where you're seeing patients, uh, the type of treatment that you're providing, intubation and otherwise, and, you know, just the dynamics of it all. You know that uh, these people are coming in, and hopefully they're coming in soon enough. But of course, as we know, many of them are not, and we—you've discussed some of the reasons why. You know, they're not coming in. Maybe it's just simple lack of health insurance, uh, or stigma, or whatever it might be, right? So let's talk about the work that you're doing, the patients that you're seeing, and how you're navigating all of this and trying to help them. My job as a hospitalist, and so what we do is take care of patients that get admitted to the hospital. They're inpatient, we call it. In our hospital, we have COVID units and we have COVID-10 for the emergency room. But once we make the decision that, you know, this person requires oxygen or they're high risk of complications, the emergency department physicians call us. Um, we go down, we see them, we evaluate them, and then we make a decision as to whether the patient needs to stay in the hospital. Once the patient stays in the hospital, we have uh, COVID-designated units. And, you know, when this all started, we, we had one unit, and it was most of the time empty. The reality of it is that the measures that we put in, especially in Monterey County, where we early on, we locked things down and we took precautions, the strategy worked. You know, we weren't seeing a lot of hospitalizations. Our, our hospital, our COVID unit was relatively empty. Um, but once, you know, these restrictions started getting lifted, now we've had to open up a second unit and we have a third unit available if needed because there have been times where both of our COVID units were full. And so we're just, you know, we're we're opening up COVID units and we're seeing now, we're like I said, we're averaging about 15 to 20 patients at any given day in the hospital with COVID-19. And these hospitalizations or their course tends to run anywhere from a day or two to several weeks. And like I said, everybody, it varies, you know, people, obviously what, what one of the things that we're seeing is people with obesity tend to do a little bit poorly. And so, or at least we have a harder time weaning them off or getting them off the oxygen. In terms of the progression of the disease, some folks, they're requiring a little bit of oxygen in the beginning. And then over the next couple of days, they start requiring more and more oxygen. So this is a new disease. And what we were seeing in the beginning was that people were getting intubated relatively early and having a low threshold to intubate uh, patients. But what we're starting to see now is that those patients tended to have uh, worse outcomes once they were intubated. And so now the train of thought is to avoid intubation 
um, as much as we can and trying to see if we can just maximize their oxygen and doing other things like putting them uh, um, face down. And so we're, we're, we're employing a lot of these techniques and avoiding intubation. So, you know, we're still having to intubate a few people, but it's not as much as we were before. Um, and I think that's leading to better outcomes. And also we're using some of the experimental therapies that are available, like the use of remdesivir and uh, convalescent plasma, which is you know getting antibodies from other folks who have had it um, to try to minimize the complications or, or the, the illness of patients. And also using steroids such as dexamethasone, which is also has also shown to you know decrease mortality by thirty percent. So we're we're employing up to the minute therapies that we have available at our arsenal, but it, it's still a pretty nasty bug that leads to a lot of death. I wanted to talk about you know in the Latino community uh, some of the risk factors: diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease. Things that are these risk factors that are very prevalent in the Latino community. Why specifically is diabetes so dangerous? for those who get infected with COVID-19? Really, you can lump diabetes, hypertension, and cardiac disease together as chronic condition that that is dangerous in, in many ways. And one of those ways is the fact that these conditions, especially diabetes, tends to increase you know, your risk of developing stroke, heart attacks, blood clots. And the thing about COVID-19 that we're seeing is that one of the common complications from COVID-19 that we're seeing are the same ones as stroke, heart attacks, blood clots. Um, and so when you have these complications that are seen in both of them, there's sort of a multiplying effect to it. And then, you know, with other, other conditions such as asthma, COPD, tobacco use, we're seeing higher rates of poor oxygenation, which leads to respiratory failure, which is also a complication from COVID-19. But I think as far as diabetes, it's just it's the risk that it leads to in terms of blood clots, heart disease. But also the other thing that it does is that it lowers your immune system. And so most of these chronic conditions I've listed, it, it just lowers the immune system of the body to be able to fight off diseases. And here you have a, a very deadly bug that is ravaging the body. And so for somebody with diabetes, it, it is very hard for them to overcome this deadly disease. Definitely. And uh, we talk about uh, bugs. As crazy as this is to me to think about, you know, flu season is coming and some influenza influenza and COVID-19 symptoms are similar. So what do people need to know? How can we make sense of this? How do we know when it's a common cold, allergies, or possibly the flu versus COVID-19? And if we suspect that it is COVID-19, what should we do? Both of these infections overlap with each other, and it's hard, I mean, even for the experts to know, to be able to differentiate one from the other. And so it's it's one of the reasons why it's important to get the flu shot, um, you know, this fall as soon as you can. Um, and, you know, I know the hospital is going to be hosting flu clinics starting in October, getting those flu shots in time so that, because, again, you know, with the flu, the flu shot isn't going to prevent you from getting the flu, but, you know, 30%, sometimes up to 60% of the time, it minimizes the complications from the flu. And so at least you can kind of minimize those complications from the flu. 
and then also with older folks, you know, we have pneumonias and there's a pneumonia vaccine that people should be getting. One of the things that was interesting, you know, that we saw at, at our hospital, and I, I think this also happened nationwide, is we didn't see that much, that many flu cases this year. Um, it seems like the flu season kind of was cut short, which tells you that a lot of this is community acquired. And I, I think as soon as everything shut down, um, you know, once people started stop going out and stopped, you know, mingling, we kind of also minimize the risk of flu. So both of these are viruses. Both of these, we're trying to understand how they get transmitted. Um, for as long as flu's been around, we're still learning more about it. And most of the time for both of these, you're going to be okay, but it's always going to be the people that are higher risk, the older folks, people with chronic conditions are going to be more exposed to it. And so our job in the public health field is to just protect the most vulnerable. Yeah, and that's the real trick, right? That That's the difficult part is, of course, there are so many who are so vulnerable. And as you say, your responsibility is to try to protect them and to help them. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, SVMH and the entire system has done everything they can with drive-up testing and triage tents. And as you say, you know, opening up more and more space, unfortunately, because that's needed to treat COVID-19 patients. Dr. Gonzalez, as we wrap up here today, what else can we tell listeners about COVID-19, about the treatment that they can receive at SVMH and the entire system? What can they do to protect themselves, whether it's masks or or social distancing? Uh, Break it all down for us. One of the things I did want to mention that kind of gets overlooked, and we see it a lot in the media and also the way that that the CDC reports these things, is that you know, at least in Monterey County, they're saying 71% of cases of COVID-19 are with people with no known pre-existing conditions. And so it's it's a little bit misleading. They're not counting obesity as a, as a pre-existing condition. And so what I'm seeing personally and some of my colleagues here, at least at SVMH, is that the people that, we're getting, that are getting admitted and the people that are are having prolonged hospital stays are folks with obesity. And, and one of the reasons why is, you know, obesity not only leads to undiagnosed diabetes, which we're also diagnosing as they're in the hospital, um, hypertension that we're also seeing for the first time in these people. So they, they may have, you know, just the fact that they had obesity likely means they had underlying diabetes that was never diagnosed. You know, that, that itself, as we talked about, leads to complications for COVID-19, but obesity itself, can cause other lesser-known conditions such as sleep apnea, and one of the uh, syndromes that we call obesity hypoventilation syndrome, which results in the lungs not getting sufficient oxygen because they're unable to expand due to the size of the person. So, you know, when they say, you know, well, I don't have any pre-existing conditions, or you know, I I don't I shouldn't worry about it. I mean, obesity is very is running rampant throughout the country. Just because you don't have diabetes, but if you have obesity that puts you at a vulnerable uh, population. And so maybe taking that into account is even if you're young, if, if you have obesity, that, that can lead to complications. And so just keeping that in mind as well to kind of say, well, well, you know, I'm not as invincible as I thought. And then, you know, the, the other big things, which, you know, it's, it's very, very, very important to wear a mask and make sure you're wearing it appropriately, that it covers your nose, it covers your mouth. So obviously, the best ones are the N95, but those are being used by healthcare providers. But you know, the the surgical mask that you can buy, you know, um, online, those are next best thing. Cloth masks, 
There's still some debate as to whether they're effective. But at this point, all of these are more effective than not wearing a mask. And so wearing a mask, washing your hands, using soap and water at least for 20 seconds. Try not to go out in public if you can. If you do go out in public, making sure you stay six feet away from others and then wear a mask when you're out there. Uh, Dr. Gonzalez, uh, you have been a wealth of information breaking all of this down for us, especially for the Latino community, which has been hit very hard, you know, in Monterey County and Salinas. And I know that the SVMH and the entire Salinas system is doing everything they can, and we all just need to do our part and hope that we can get through this. I have a feeling I'm going to speak with you again. Uh, Until I do, stay well. If you have questions regarding COVID-19, please call our COVID-19 hotline at 831-755-0793. Bilingual nurses are answering calls from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. seven days a week. And we are constantly posting COVID-19 information in both languages on our social media platforms. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn for the latest. And be sure to visit svmh.com slash coronavirus for more information on the coronavirus in both languages. And we hope you found this podcast to be helpful and informative. This is Ask the Experts from Salinas Valley Memorial Healthcare System. I'm Scott Webb. Stay well, and we'll talk again next time.